Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Looking back on it now in hindsight, it was me playing the victim to keep myself sick or me playing the victim so that I could be special and different in school. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast with the mission to bring voices to the addiction recovery and mental health illness community through advocacy and accessible resources. I'm your host, Jason, alcoholic addict. My co-host over there, Uncle Mikey. I am here to help you guys open up about mental health. Well, he struggles with some anxiety and depression. Oh, I'm just riddled with it. And our guest, uh, Tony Becker, she is no different. Uh, you're going to hear her story about suffering from an eating disorder, how she fell into deep, deep addiction, the levels of manipulation she went to, and how she got herself out of it. And some weird demonic beetles that they go through once a month. Where's she at? South Africa? She is from South Africa. Yeah. Tony, you know, Mikey's pissed off because... Uh, you know, somebody's competing with the, the tattoo space here. So, you know, I wouldn't um, say mad. I would just say disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> People being disappointed with me. So I'm good to go with that. <laughs> hey, my face is tattooed. My dad didn't talk to me for like a year. So I'm used to disappointment too. <laughs> my mom would disown me straight up. Disown me. I come home. I'm, I come from a Jewish family, bro. I go home oh, with wow. a tattoo. That's me. I'm out. Gone. Oh, and then wow. Take me back. <laughs> <laughs> the love of a parent uh well hey thanks thanks for joining us uh for those uh listening watching uh tony's all the way in south africa so this is pretty cool to connect all the way across the globe but uh i i was so compelled when i i found the way you're sharing your story of addiction and mental health recovery and such an inspiration and that honesty i i've read so many comments especially women of how much it's helping them um, so I want to start. What what made you decide? Because you're nine years in or ten years in? I forget. Of so nine and a half. Nine and a half years in. Hell yeah! I'll be 10 right on. Congratulations. So, what made you decide to open up so much about your recovery? First of all, thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I just want to make that clear from the get go. I'm just super grateful. Of course. Um, but what made me want to talk about it, so I've never really hit it in the beginning of my recovery journey, but I struggled with severe anorexia for a very long time. And for the first six years of my sobriety, I struggled with the eating disorder. And I, when I overcame the eating disorder and figured out how to cope with that, I felt like I was living a kind of real recovery where I could share on both kinds of recovery and I feel like that space was missing because there aren't a lot of people talking about eating disorder recovery and addiction recovery because the two kind of go hand in hand for a lot of people. And once I had found that recovery, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I was sitting down with um, my friends and we always go for coffees on a Sunday. And we were like, are we bored? You know, we're working every day. We're just working to make money. What else can we do? And we were like, let's start a YouTube channel or something and just discuss recovery. And that's when it all began. And it's just snowballed from there. So I'm curious. So I 
also suffered from bulimia, anorexia, all that stuff. What was your reasoning? What made you start doing that? Was it somebody that you saw on TV? You want to look like this person in the magazine, something like that? It's super complicated. Um, it's Thank you for sharing about yours as well. It's really important sure. that we hear about men that struggle with it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, since I was a little girl, so from the age of nine, I grew up in a family that was really attractive. Like my mom is beautiful. Like my whole family is just very attractive. And I always felt like an outsider. So I got body dysmorphic disorder from the age of nine. Mm -hmm. And I started putting on makeup. I started worrying about what I looked like really severely. And then when I got to high school, a lot of comments were being passed about people's weights. I was looking, especially in the early 2000s, when you open a magazine and it was just almost pro-anorexic culture. Yeah. And there was someone I was very good friends with, who I'm friends with again now This um, in my recovery, who was struggling with an eating disorder. And I started noticing, and this is where I'm going to be as honest as possible, I started noticing the attention she was getting. And as a really young attention seeking, um, I need affirmation consistently kind of person at the age of 14, I wanted the people to look at me and be like, oh, we're concerned about Tony. Oh, what we are worried about her. And I was like, I'll just lose a little bit of weight. And, um, you know, maybe I'll start being accepted. People will start noticing me. I won't feel like such an outsider without realizing what would actually become of that. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I could control it. And the next second, I'm in this whirlwind of a lifelong battle with a severe eating disorder. And I would think that's where it started. The Secret Life Podcast. True confessions of love, sex, money, food, addiction, and hidden taboo topics that are often hilarious, uplifting, and hopeful. Every Monday, best-selling author and actress, Breanne Davis, pulls back the curtain on the deepest, darkest, heartbreaking, and sometimes silly secrets from an eclectic group of guests, including celebrities and anonymous listeners. Some past guests include celebrities like The Newsroom's Olivia Munn, Dancing with the Stars' Cheryl Burke, Wind Down's Jana Kramer, TikTok influencer Adam Rose, to anonymous guests sharing stories of trauma, addiction, recovery, and mental health. With over a decade of recovery, Breanne's disarming approach creates an intimate and safe space for her guests to bear their souls. Uncover the truth as the guests share practical advice. And just like that, we're laughing, crying, inspired, and filled with hope. Listen to The Secret Life Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. At such a young age, in, in looking outward for fulfillment, and that's yeah. kind of when we start that wonderful manipulation process, you know? And for most of us, it's subconscious. Did you find for you, it was a kind of a subconscious, or did you actually plot it out as you said oh if I go that route then I can get this all subconscious I felt I was constantly in victim mode from the moment I was born I was a victim the world owed me a favor and I think I felt like you know I don't really fit in at school I need to um get pretty I need to do something to make myself feel attractive and then slipped into that world I didn't plan it out but looking back on it now in hindsight, it was me playing the victim to keep myself sick or me playing the victim so that I could be special and different in school. And at the time, I didn't see that. At the time, I thought, oh, I'm being bullied. I feel so sorry for myself. You know, poor me, poor me, pour me a drink. 
And that was a consistent behavior my entire life. Yeah. What was going on at home? Because I know you've made reference to, to, from what I can gather, your parents had separated, divorced? Yeah. So I grew up in, it was a very tumultuous um, home. They were married. They only got divorced when I was in university. Mm. So during that whole stretch of time, it was a very, like, scary environment as a child you know like when your parents close the door and you hear the screaming and the shouting and it's just constant fear constant fear and my mom also had a friend uh this woman who would belittle me all the time and I was a child I was really young and it that friendship caused a lot of friction between my mom and my father and he was like this woman is destroying our child and I didn't realize how like intense that hatred my dad had towards that woman was and how that played a big role in a lot of the issues in the household. And as time went by, my dad um, started working outside of Johannesburg where we stay. And he was away for long periods of time. He would travel overseas to Hong Kong for long periods of time and come back. And it was very disconnected, incredibly disconnected. And then my dad had a really bad skiing accident um a water skiing accident and he hit a tree and he broke his entire body and so he all his ribs broke he punctured his lung his kidney and he was put in a coma and when he came out of the coma i mean we were young i was about 11 he changed completely he went from being kind of the stoic strong man to being really really depressed And that's when also everything started to change, like um, seeing my father go through such mental health issues, physically and mentally going through hell, changed the dynamic of the household. And it became even more eggshells, like because you don't know what to do as a child. You don't know how to protect them. And my parents would split up, get back together, split up, get back together. And oh, I could go on for days about this. But just one more thing about that. Um, My dad's family. My dad's family were horrific people. And I say this with no, I don't care. I hope they're listening to this. Um, (laughs) They were terrible to my father. They were terrible to me. They were terrible to my mother. And he was struggling in his family environment. So he didn't really know how to deal with with a family, you know, as a father, because he never had that. And... It was just tumultuous from the get-go. There were definitely affairs and stuff like that going on. It was, it was, it was dodgy. It was dodgy to say the least. But he was a good dad. He was a, always a good dad. And then I found out when I was in my final year of high school that my parents had actually been married to each other before. So they had <laughs> been divorced and got remarried to each other and had me and my brother. That is how, like, messed up their relationship was. And then they got to all the money being wasted on a divorce (laughs) and then more money on a remarriage. Like because I've heard of people doing that and I'm just like, just date then, dude, like just save yourself 20 G's and just go on a vacation or something. Mm. That's insane, though. But it makes sense. All the fighting. You know what I mean? They hated each other. My theory is that they had like a it was just an attraction, you know, one of those attraction things. So we're like, let's split up, we're done, and then it's back together. And then yeah. let's ruin up his lives, not joking. <laughs> no, I, we know what that's about. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. I, yeah. I, I my, dated my a life. psychopath for a while. But 
She was very attractive on the outside, but on the inside, she was a fucking horrible person. Yeah. And I don't care oh. if she hears it either. <laughs> Been there. You know, you know, us addicts know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the, the thing with it, too, is I was watching this really good um, piece yesterday on just talking about lust and how much people have this confusion of it. And, and, and the guy nailed me perfectly. He's like, you've been in that relationship and you come to about two, three years in and you realize you got nothing else to talk about but the kinky ways in what you want to have sex. He goes, you've got a problem because if you go 10 years in, you're going to be like, I don't even like this person. I don't like myself in it. And, you know, I've seen it. I know for me, I can relate to your story of that lineage of trauma that goes back. And, and clearly your dad brought that into the, to the marriage and, and fatherhood. Absolutely. And it's that toxic thing. You, like, as you were saying, I was talking about this today. It's just, I found that also during, so I grew up seeing that and all my relationships were this just toxic and toxic because that's what you think um, a relationship is, what you think love is. Product your environment. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So when did uh, uh, the substance use start to come into play? Did it come in hand in hand with the bulimia and eating disorder? So the eating disorder actually started before. So the eating disorder with my is my what I would call my primary um, illness. It's my primary issue. Um, but then when I so like I said, I come from a, a Jewish family. So my drinking started quite early. So at the age of thirteen. Uh, you know, you have bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and that kind of stuff. And you just drink. That's, it goes hand in hand with that. And the first time I drank was at my brother's bar mitzvah. And I was, it was when the eating disorder started. It was actually when the eating disorder started. Um, I had a vodka lime, whatever. And it was the first time I blacked out at the age of 14. was the first time I blacked out. I do not remember my brother's bar mitzvah. And that was a pattern with my drinking from that day on until the last day I drank. Yeah. You're better now, so we can joke about it. But wasn't it nice waking up at 14 with no hangover because you're super young? <laughs> we could joke about it now because you're sober. <laughs> joke about it. You wake up and you're like, oh, okay, a little bit of a headache. Let me just take a pull and I'm fine. Yeah, <laughs> I, get a, I get a hangover watching somebody drink. Um, so what I want to know is when you were, because like I said, I can relate to you as far as the anorexia thing. When did you stop that? When were you like, okay, this is a problem. I need to quit. When was that rock bottom? Not the substance, just the weight stuff. So this is this was three and a half years ago. Oh, okay. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, so the the eating disorder followed me throughout my whole life, and oh, during uh, there were a lot of phases where you want to stop because it's it is hell. There's no word to describe eating disorder. It's hell. Um, and there were times during it, just like addiction, I want to stop, I want to stop, I want to stop. And you just never get to that point where you do stop. Um, I was in and out of institutions for it throughout high school, but um, four and a half years ago, um, three and a half years ago, sorry, my father, who had become a, like literally my best friend in my recovery, my best friend, my biggest supporter. Cause while I was going through my own recovery, he was going through his own kind of recovery. Mm. And we got called into, um, a, to, into the hospital cause my dad wasn't feeling well. Now he's already, he was a really young man, like 60 years old, strong. 
and we got called to the the hospital and it's, he got stung by a scorpion like the day before so we what thought it was something to do with oh, that yeah you guys are in south africa that's right like There's a no scorpion, scorpion. <laughs> gosh <laughs> damn it he was just chilling at a golf estate and got chowed by a scorpion it was just something that would happen to my dad i would have moved <laughs> immediately i'd have been gone Dude, right <laughs> And I don't even go to the country because I don't want to run into a garden snake. Oh. Yeah, no, not for me. Scorpion, like it blows my mind. Like he got bit by, well, stung by a scorpion. Stupid, stupid. So um, we got called into the doctor's room and we're sitting there. And this doctor comes out and he goes, uh, my dad's name was Alan. He says, Alan, you've got a problem. And we're sitting there and we're like, okay. And he's got, he goes, you've got stage four pancreatic cancer and you've got nine months to live. And he oh, said it exactly. And I was sitting next to my dad and I looked at him and he was sitting there, like kind of sunk into his chair, you know, and there were a lot of us in the room. And I looked at him and I was thinking to myself, he's going to die. You know, he is going to die. He has nine months to live. This is how he dies. And in that moment, I realized that my dad had been looking at me like that my entire life saying she is going to die. She is like, it's not even, it's, it's going to be soon, especially at that point with how sick I was within the anorexia. Yeah. And I actually walked out because I didn't want to make a scene and be like overly crying during that moment. And then I went back in and immediately after he got the diagnosis and got, got told, well, you know, what the plan is moving forward. We left the room and he went straight up to me. And he said, Tony, please make me a promise. So I was like, yes. He said, please don't die before me. Oh, fuck. (laughs) And in that point, I was like, this is it. I I have to recover from this. I don't care how hard it's going to be. I don't care how much it's going to want to make me die. I have to do this. Mm -hmm. It just made mortality really real. And it made me want to show my dad I can do this. And he never got to live to see it. You never got to see me recover. You know, I actually, it's not about me. It's about you, but I have a similar story. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I went to rehabs and all that stuff for Coke. And it was just a complete waste of time. This certain rehab, not all rehabs, this particular one, just a complete waste of time. I was pissed off the entire time. I was trying to fight people because if you fight, you get kicked out and getting kicked out sounds a lot better than quitting. So that's what I, and it's just, everybody was so damn nice. So I felt like a dick and I'm not a dick. I'm a nice guy. Um, no, you're a dick. So when I get, <laughs> when I get home, um, you know, time goes by a couple of years go by and it was with the cocaine. My mom said, you know, when I was pregnant with you, I did everything in my power to keep you as healthy as I possibly could. And she never said, stop doing Coke, but she always has this look. She's one of those old school Mexican moms where they just okay. look at you and you know, you messed up. She still to this day does that when she looks at my tattoos, but um, <laughs> she gave and she told me that. And I was just I, I then I stopped completely. No rehab, no nothing, no N.A., no nothing. It was my mom that stopped me because yeah. my mom's my girl. How your dad is to you is my mom to me. That, like that's. Yeah, I get that. I'm sorry that happened, but I'm glad you're better. Thank you. Thank you. And he would be I know he's like he would be proud. He of would course. Absolutely. Yeah. He would be. I think he'd be really proud, not only that you've confronted it, but that you're sharing it and getting out there. And I know that he, I know that there's uh, people that you're helping that you don't even know that you're helping. And that is the coolest part of it all, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
So I got to ask. So, so we started with drinking. You remember, you know, your brother, well, you don't remember your brother's bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're kind of down that path, but this didn't stop with alcohol. I mean, you got into everything. So where did it kind of segue from there and grow? I know you mentioned, you know, at high school, you know, it's probably some weed and stuff in there, but I'm guessing in, in uh, college, university, as you call it there, is when stuff really started to ramp up. Things went wild. So in um, university, I was studying drama. I was an actress. I could, you know, we were at varsity all day, every day in the theater, going out, partying at night. And that's when I was drinking a lot. But my, my addiction to meth and cat, which is a drug in South Africa, which I'll tell you about if you want to know a bit about mm-hmm. that later. What's it um, called? Sorry. Cat. C-A-T. Oh, so it's yeah. not K-A-T or M-Cat. It's just cat. It's very, very prevalent here. Hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I ended up in my first rehab just for drinking. And when I, I, I mean, I did horrific things when I, I tried to run my friends over one night and wrote my car off in a golf course and had to get my friends to come get me out. And I went to my first rehab the next day. <laughs> and, I did that um, completely sober when the Niners lost. So I get it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so I went to that rehab and uh, I thought, you know, I'm cured after a week. I'm hundred percent fine. I'm just going to leave. Um, I'm actually really grateful I left then because then another trauma happened. If you want to know about it, I'll tell you, obviously. Sure. But I don't, um, my, my cousin, who was my, literally like my sister, and we were nine months apart, best friends, grew up together. In fact, when I was drinking so badly and causing so much havoc at home, I moved in with her and her mom um, and her other sisters. But I went into rehab and I left. And that day I went home and my cousin was sitting there and she kept saying, I've got a headache. I've got this really bad headache. So my mom took her to the hospital and they gave her medicine, like a viral choice. I don't know if you have that there. They gave her viral choice and they sent her home. And that night um, she fell into a coma and she got meningitis and was rushed to the hospital. She was in a, Terry was in a coma for three weeks. Um, and then they, they had to pull the plug. We had to pull the plug. She really, she was not, she wasn't, she wasn't here anymore. Right. And I, as someone who already had a drinking problem, as someone who had already suffered with an eating disorder, as sick as this sounds, I was broken. I was devastated when my cousin died. But I saw it in my, without thinking it on a conscious level, this is an opportunity for me once again to play the victim. Sure. And I can go out now and I can drink now and no one's going to say to me, you can't drink while you're drinking because I've just gone through something. And it's like the perfect kind of trauma for me was the perfect excuse to mess up more because no one can say anything. Are you having something preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? Well, check out betterhelp.com slash listener. That's betterhelp.com slash listener. BetterHelp assists you with matching your own licensed professional therapist. Here's some great things about BetterHelp. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Plus, BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and it's free to change 
those counselors if you need. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, it's all confidential. And you can check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. It is not a crisis line, it's help. Better help. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com listener. So join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash listener. A proud sponsor of the Knocking Doors Down podcast. 5150 is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams and working hard, and always striving to make those dreams your reality. We believe life is too short to sit back and say, what if? Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being 5150 is committing to that long, hard road. That road you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's 5150. If you're living the 5150 lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. So listen up. There's a special deal for listeners of Knocking Doors Down. Go to 5150LTM.com and enter code KDD20 and receive 20% off your purchase. That's 51FIFTYLTM.com. And I met someone, I met a guy as it goes, you meet someone who, you know, you end up using with or whatever, but I met him and I knew, I knew he was a drug addict. I knew he had a problem with drugs. I knew what he was about and I went straight for it. I was like, this is what I want, you know? And the one night we went out and I got super, super drunk and we went back to his place and he was like, I've got some uh, cat for you. So I was like, okay, cool, let's do cat. And then three days later, being up for three days, I was like, it feels like my heart's going through my chest and I'm getting really paranoid. And he was like, oh, by the way, that was crystal meth. And that's when things started for me. (laughs) So cat's an upper then? Cat's, yeah, it's an upper. Imagine coke and crystal meth and something in between. Cat would be like the in-between between those two. So it's like a Costco and Walmart. You got something nice and then you got something not so nice. <laughs> so like a target. It's like a target. I'm sure they're going to appreciate us fucking branding them with street drugs. Yeah. If they paid me, I would have said your name here. Your right. name inserted here. Oh, shit. It's pretty crazy. And it just goes to show how, uh, you know, quote unquote, our bedfellows that we choose lead to our lifestyle. And yeah. you even stayed about it. And, and, and I want people to really hopefully catch what, what Tony just said was that subconscious thinking. It was not a conscious thought. Yeah. You, your, your mind, the desire for the numbing, the high, the drunkenness, everything else took over. And you found that situation exactly what you were looking for. Exactly that. Like I wanted to escape. I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. I felt very sorry for myself. And I felt like, why, why not? You know, this is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. I really, you know what the best is? I don't know if you guys did this, but it's like, I really need to live, you know, I'm special and I need to live the best life. Like I need to be a rock star. I need to do these cool things and not just exist. And then I end up just existing for drugs, you know? 
Yeah. yeah. No, no, you nailed it. I was I, thinking. I totally get it. I was thinking about that the other day. I've been invited to do some speaking engagements with teenagers. And, uh, you know, that's kind of my premise. Like, I thought I was a fucking rock star. I mean, I literally got my photo with Tommy Lee and I'm like, see how badass I am. I'm a rock star, too. And it's the bullshit that I was telling myself out of all those insecurities that I can very much relate to that what you're sharing. He didn't have me there at, at that point in time to ground him. You're like, Jason, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you're it. not Tommy Lee, Jason. <laughs> this is Tommy true. Lee's a rock star, Jason, not you. <laughs> this is true. And, and I'm totally good with that. <laughs> um, so I know there was many other things and you shared an amazing story just on TikTok that I, uh, um, which people you need to go check out uh, Tony's TikTok. We got the link in the description here in the bio for the audio and video for however you're getting this, just the levels of manipulation that you went to. And it was a particular incident where you were talking when your dad was still alive and I'm guessing you were still living with your, your mom and brother at that point. So this story and I, like every time I think of the story, you know how, especially with my drug of choice, time doesn't really make sense. So I don't know if it happened all in one night or if it's just two separate incidents, but I remember it as one incident. So what happened was um, I got home and I, want, I had actually just called my dealer. I had just called him. I was going to go get my drugs from McDonald's and, <laughs> and, do my, and my mom came into the room and she was like, you can't. You, you, you're not leaving this house. You're not leaving this house. You're going to die. I'm not okay with this. And I took, uh, I, I had to go, you know, you do anything to leave. So I took a glass that was next to me and I threw it at my mom and I cut her whole leg open. It was just blood. And I was walking over her and my brother came into the room. Now my brother was, is younger than me. He's three years younger than me. He was still in high school. And he came in and he was devastated. I just hurt his mother. I just really threatened his mother's life basically. And he was restraining me. He got on top of me and restrained me from leaving the house and was yelling at me. And I started kicking. I started shouting. I was saying, you know, you say the cruelest things, just trying to hurt him. And he got so angry. He picked me up and he threw me. Now, he didn't throw me to hurt me. He threw me, just stop, just stop. You know, I was attacking him. I was like biting him. I don't even know what I was doing. And he threw me. He didn't throw me that hard. And in that moment, I saw an opportunity. And I hit my head as he threw me. I was like, oh, shit, you know, I can get something for this. So I hit my head against the cupboard door as hard as I could. It was a cupboard or a wall. I don't remember. And I hit the side of my body as much as I could and as hard as I could. And I was like, look what you've done to me. You've hurt me. You, you're abusing me. You're so abusive. And I left the house, managed to get my drugs. And I went to that the same guy's house that I spoke about earlier, stayed there for the night uh, for a few days, actually waited for the bruises to come. I got bruises down the side of my body, took photos, sent them to my dad. And I was like, um, and my parents were divorced at this time. I was like, your son's abusing me, man. I mean, like a very abusive household, like shit's wild. Like I can't live like this. He's like, okay, come, come to me now. I'll hook you up. I'll give you some money. You know, you can just take some time, go stay at a friend's house, you know, look after you, your, you know, your brother's being an asshole. And my dad wasn't so in my, my life at this point. You know, we were quite separated at this point. So he gave me the money and I went on and lived my best drug-fueled few weeks on that. Those were the kind of things I would do, just like feel sorry, find any opportunity, any opportunity and monetize it. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. all too familiar, you know? And I think that's part of the reason too, we'll continue in toxic relationships as well as we, like you're talking, even with your folks, we get the rush from the reconnection. And then once yeah. it goes bad again, well, it's an excuse to feel sorry and just go off and use again in another area. Exactly. Everything's an excuse. Everything. So when is the point for you that you hit rock bottom, that it was just, the, you know, let's start with the substances, uh, that it was just like, I'm done. I can't, I, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, that moment of clarity as some of us ha hopefully have. So my, my story is a little different and there wasn't like one exact, well, there is one moment, but I was forced into my last rehab. I did not want to go to this rehab. And it was my father who actually got involved for the first time. And he was like, I'm taking, you're going to a proper rehab, you know, like a, a rehab where you have to do the work and it's going to be long-term. And he took me there. He put child lock on the car doors. I tried to get out on the highway, you know, that's how much I didn't want to go. And I went there and I sat down and I was like, okay, well, I'm stuck here. I'm going to do what I usually do at rehab. I'm going to manipulate my way through. I'm going to leave in my head, I'm going to get a job when I leave because magically I'll get a job and make money and move into my own place. And then I'll relapse. Like I had this plan. Real quick, real quick, real so, quick. When you're stuck there, like, was it a rehab that wouldn't let you leave or you just felt stuck because you wanted to obey your dad? Oh, no, we couldn't. I couldn't leave the rehab. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, you can leave if you want. You can RHT. I don't know what you call it that side, but I was stuck mostly because of my dad. Got you. Yeah. Okay. Proceed. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was stuck mostly because of my dad. Also, they were going to get me on a section. So if I had left, they, you know, like they threatened the section and all of that sure. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I went in and I didn't want to be there. And then things changed for me when I was in group one day. So I was sitting in group therapy and this, and every single counselor at this rehab was a recovering addict. And I think that was the difference because, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And I was sitting, you know, sitting in this group session and the counselor is talking to me and she's asking me, you know, about my life story. And I told her the story of my cousin, like I just told you guys, except I was saying, you know, she's my, she was my best friend. And I started crying and I was like, I can't live without her and all this kind of stuff. And that's why I did drugs. That's what I said to her. And she said to me, very matter of factly, she, she goes, so how does it feel to have disrespected the memory of your cousin? Oh. And it, it was tough. It was rough. And you know what? It's what I needed. But I was sitting there and I was holding this chair. And I was like, either I'm going to pick this up and I'm going to beat this woman who would have beaten me up straight <laughs> like I had. Well, I'm just going to sit with these emotions. And I sat with them. And I think for the first time in my whole life, I became self-aware for the first time. And from that moment on, that's when things started changing for me. That was the, that was the, the turning point. And I just took it day by day from then. Um, it was, and as each day went by, each day I was in rehab, each day I was in the halfway house, each day I was in the sober house. For the first time in my life, I realized that I had too much to lose. And that's, that's the shift for me. So it wasn't like this massive moment of realization. It was more putting in the work and the self-awareness around that. And what, how long from uh, time of entering that facility to leaving a sober house um, was it? Three months, six <laughs> months? How long? So I did two years. Wow. So oh, shit. I did. Shit. <laughs> I, did um, I only did. So I did 
uh, five months in the actual facility. Mm-hmm. And I went to hospital during that time as well because my kidneys stopped working properly. And then after that, I was in a halfway house, but I did long term at the halfway house. So I was in the halfway house for a year. And then from the halfway house, I went to sober living and that was another year. So I did like really like a long stretch of it. Sure. I did 30 days and I thought I was going to go fucking crazy. <laughs> Can't imagine that long. Uh, Goodness, See, I, days is rough, dude. It's rough. But I, you know, what I'm I just like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. And we're out in the country. I saw weird ass bugs I've never seen before. It was like you're such in the middle of Tijuana and San Diego. Dude. It was right in the middle, and we're out in the cuts. And there was like fucking tomato bugs. That was like a giant. It just looked like a giant bouncing ball with legs. And I'm like, what the fuck is that thing? And they're just like, that's a tomato bug, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, gosh, I got to go. Remind me, I can never take you to Australia. I would never go to Australia. Get kicked <laughs> in the face by a fucking kangaroo. No, I'm good. Australia is like made to kill you. It's like you go there and they're going to kill like the, the animals will kill you. But yeah. Yeah, please tell up. me more. Let's go. Like, no, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> look up a Parktown prawn in Joburg in South Africa. Look up a Parktown prawn. Okay, Bro, I will. They jump. They, they look at you and they attack and you cannot kill them. What and is it? Spread, it's, 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 like, it's, it's like a cricket, but like an overgrown cricket. Like a oh, cricket. Oh, fuck that. Hell yeah. If we ever I, meet in person, you're going to have to come to California because we, I, well, I don't know about Jason, but I am not going there. Oh, I would go there. It <laughs> does not scare me. Like once a year for like a week and they live in your slippers. They, they torture you. They find places to go in your home and they're like, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> so and, and you, like, is there like a like we have bug or you know the what, what do you call them insect people like term terminators. terminators that's what they're exterminator exterminator you guys have like just like a fucking exterminator times a hundred in south africa <laughs> Still with, with, with on our own we like okay we're just gonna get this guy out no no of course we have exterminators but Parktown prawns are like, they're a different, I don't know what they are. Like, I don't, I think they're manufactured in a lab or something. That's how it's like, it's like a COVID version of a bug. <laughs> nobody knows where it came from and nobody knows how to get rid of it. <laughs> exactly what it is. And you can't do anything about it. You like, you like spray it and it just looks at you like, oh, you're trying, you're trying. You're not going to, and it spits at you. <laughs> how did we get on the bug talk? I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of bugs, Crystal May. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. No uh, shit. So I want to, I, Tony, I got to ask you because I'm probably the only addict that goes, gosh, I wish I had the opportunity to go to rehab. So that was kind of a lot of my challenge. Yeah, um, you are the only one. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I am because I think I would have been, would have cleaned me up a little quicker. It would have stuck, you know? I mean, I, I think I, you know, it was like seven years ago, eight years ago, maybe that I attempted to get sober for the first time. And then it was, I could do a year and a half or something, but, you know, fall off. So anyways, what I want to ask was, what are maybe some of those valuable things that you took away from your time in, in a treatment facility and then into, you know, sober living house? And, and I'm guessing you probably maybe work furlough from there. What are some of the things that really helped you um, not only grow internally, mentally and emotionally, but then taking that out in the world? Because I don't think we've really asked someone about that yet. That's such a good question. For me, um, the, if I'm thinking specifically about a rehab environment, it was routine. 
Mm. Routine was very, very important for me then. And getting used to a kind of routine, you know, actually going to sleep, uh, waking up, making my bed, just living my life um, and being aware of time and chores and things like that really, really helped me. Um, in the past, I thought I didn't like routine. And as boring as it sounds in the beginning of recovery, I needed that. I needed to keep things as simple as possible. And rehab gave me this routine. And I took that with me. But, and then there's also the sense of human connection. In active addiction, you know, we think we have all these amazing friends and we're using with them. And there's this, oh, I found my people. But as time goes by, you isolate, you know, you're on your own. These people mean nothing to you and there's no real connection. And for me, my whole life, there was no real connection. Yeah. And then you go into a rehab facility and for the first time, and I'm not saying these are friendships you have for the rest of your lives. They, they fleeting, you know, I don't know where half those people are now, but it was the first time that I was around people that I understood and that understood me. And to be in an environment where people can be honest and open and there's no frills, there's no masks, you know, um, that's when I realized that people are just people and I can connect with these people. And it's that sense of human connection I found. And I also learned how to speak to people, how to engage with people, mm. how to get to know myself, figure out what I like, what I don't like. That gave me the space to do it. But the most important thing was that this rehab was a 12-step rehab. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't like, a, a lot of people aren't for NA, a lot of people, you know, aren't heavily invested in it. But for me, it's what I needed. And doing the 12 steps in that rehab, I had to do it in the rehab. I had to do, it was the first three steps. I had to do them. Um, it was part of the program. And doing that in an environment that kind of forced me to do it, because on my own, I don't think I would have done it properly. I tried before in the past. Um, got to the root of a lot of things I didn't want to face. Sure. And I needed that. I needed that then. I don't think I had the... I applaud people. Like um, my old sponsee, when she was 18 years old, walked into the rooms of NA and cleaned up at 18, just going to the rooms. I could never <laughs> have done that. Ever. Not a chance in hell. I needed an environment where it was like, you have to do this yeah. in the beginning. And again, that's the, it comes down to routine. It comes down to routine. That's what I learned the most there, I would say. I, I did get that out of my rehab. The, when I got back, like the first month and a half, I woke up and made my bed every single day. <laughs> like, Cause you're just like, Mike, your bed's not made. And it, you just take that with you. Cause it is so, and I'm already very routine, but that made me routine as hell. So I totally understand what you're saying with that. Absolutely. Did uh, being that you come from a background of Jewish faith, was it a pretty easy thing when we talk for those that maybe aren't aware, you know, in AANA, even sex and love addiction, all of the meetings, there's that commonality, you know, the stuff that comes from the big book of finding the higher power. Was it that a pretty easy process? Did you already kind of have faith or in the depths of your addiction? It's like, I don't believe. I never had faith. No. <laughs> I never had faith um, in in the early days of, you know, we call it primary school. I don't know if you guys have, if that's what it's called there. But like, you know, the first few years of school, um, I went to a Jewish school and we just did this kind of stuff. And I never really believed in any of it. And as I grew up, I just kept lo losing faith. Like I don't follow a specific religion. I never have. And 
the higher power that they mentioned in the 12 steps is what scared me the most. That was the part I didn't want to tackle. I was like, nope, nope, this is a cult. This is a cult. <laughs> Try to convert me to something. I don't know what it is, but I'm not, I'm not participating. And then someone said something to me, which was very interesting. They said, do you think you're a God? So I was like, no. And they're like, did you think you were God in active addiction? You know, you behaved like you thought you were God. You put everyone else, uh, you put yourself ahead of everyone else. You didn't think of the consequences you were creating around you. And you did everything just for you. That is a sense of narcissism. It's like you believe yourself to be God. And then he was like, well, do you believe you're God? I'm like, no. He goes, well, then you have a higher power. You know, you believe in something outside of yourself. And I found that in the rooms of NA. So I would look around and see people who had one day clean or people with like 30 years clean. And I was like, if they can get clean, I can get clean. Yeah. And yeah. that was my sense of a higher power. But it was a struggle to get to that, a very big struggle to get to that. And I think everyone has to come to it on their own terms. I know for Mike, growing up Catholic, it's really stuck. And I did Catholic school and those kind of things. But for me, you know, it had to be like, I'm so inquisitive. Like I got to know more and most of all about myself, which maybe is a little narcissistic, but I like to understand myself, especially when I fuck up. Like, why did I do that? And if I can understand, then I can make the amends. Cause I'm still pretty big on that. I think my sponsor and I are going to start working the steps again here shortly, like going back through and, uh, you know, the inventory, which is important for me. Um, you know, cause I think part of my narcissism is I always think I affect people more than I actually do. So yeah, I'm no, exactly always, <laughs> are you, I always had that. Like Jason said, I grew up in a Catholic family and I still to this day, never doubted it, you know? So when other people don't, that's fine. You know, that it's to each their own. I mean, in my opinion, it seems kind of lonely if you don't believe in God, it's like, wow. So who do you talk to when, everything in life is going bad. It seems very lonely, but like I said, I'm not here to judge or whatever. If people want to talk about it off air, then I'm more than happy to talk about it. But if they don't want to hear it, no, 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 get away. That's fine too. I'm not tripping. You do you, homie, <laughs> and I'll do me. I found, I was saying this the other day, when if I'm in an airplane and there's like a little bit of turbulence, I will find God. <laughs> right? I will all of a sudden, people start believing again when something's <laughs> going bad. I remember Hebrew. I remember Jewish prayers. I remember right? different prayers. I go. I go through them. And I'm like, please, something, something. <laughs> yeah. You say the serenity, but I will find whatever I can. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I get it. When is it the time then when you got long enough into uh, sobriety, at least from chemical addiction? Um, granted, for people that don't understand, you know, anorexia, bulimia, there is still a great chemical response that is happening there in our brain, uh, much like any other one, our dopamine, our serotonin, and, and, and so on and so on. But did you feel a confidence to actually sponsor? I started sponsoring a, a year into it. A wow. year in, it was a year and a bit into it. There was this, um, I'm, I'm so proud of her. There's so... Um, there was a, a woman in a girl in the rooms who came up to me. She was a few days clean and she was like, I just love your style. You know, can you, you know how it goes in the beginning. And um, I started working the steps with her and I just fell in love with, uh, with, spon with sponsoring. I really did. I was like, this is amazing. And she 
and I, I was very hard on her in the beginning. You know, I just gotten out of rehab. I've just learned all this hard stuff. And I was like, I'm going to be super, super hard on her. And I was, and it was a great relationship. Then she relapsed mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, you know, get clean. I'll still take you on. I'll take you back. But you've got one more chance. If you relapse, you're going to have to find another sponsor. And she was my sponsee for two and a half years. And then she relapsed again. And she told me, oh, she had lied to me a bit. And then she um, told me, and I was like, I-, I love you, but you have to find another sponsor. And guess what? She is an addiction counselor today at one of the top rehabs in this country. Oh, good for That's her. That's badass. Love her. Yeah. Makes I me love so it. happy. <laughs> love it. What was the hardest thing you found for your uh, sponsees as a sponsor? Was it, uh, I find most people, it's when they got to make that inventory. That is the toughest thing to go through. It is so difficult. It's so difficult. Like I remember doing it with my, my sponsor back then. And it was like, I was terrified, but I didn't ever think, you know, how is she feeling either? And doing it with my, I love, I just love seeing the growth. So I've got a new sponsor now who's like, she's like my heart. I I love her so much. And we're busy doing, doing inventory now and everything. And it's, it's amazing. Like, look, we take on a lot, but it's amazing to see the growth. And to see someone say things that they've been wanting to say for so long and get through that kind of stuff, it is, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And um, it's just, I enjoy it. It's something I, I could do it all day, every day. Yeah. yeah. Do you find at the depths of, you know, because you faced two different addictions. I know I did. My, my first one really is in... Um, uh, early exposure to pornography as a kid. And looking back, that was the thing that I carried through from the age of five until the last three years where I really confronted that. Um, and much like yourself, I think once the chemical addiction started getting out of the way, even though I did relapse on alcohol, I was able to deal with those underlying things. Was that kind of for you that once working the steps, getting the chemicals out of the way, then you were able to confront the root of the, uh, the eating disorder? Absolutely. I think we need, and I, I, I try, I'm trying to put this into words. So it's like, I needed to put the chemicals down first. I needed to work on that. I needed to get sober, clear my head, work on a lot of other stuff. And once I was in a clear headspace, knowing I don't want to go back to that. I was able to tackle that core, core, core issue. And I tried and it only got it right. Same as you about three and a half years ago. Mm. Um, but, and that's a process, but I could never have gotten there if I didn't get clean of the chemicals. So like needed to go through that whole, that whole sobriety journey to get to the point where I could tackle the main, main primary problem. Well, I know you're fun because I follow you on social media. Let's talk about the people think that us uh, uh, sober people are fucking boring and we're anything but because we really get to live and embrace life. Uh, Why don't you tell us maybe like a a normal day or like outings and stuff that that you do now that there's no way you would have done in your active addiction? Besides running from your life from those prawn thingies. (laughs) (laughs) I've traumatized you. I've traumatized you. You really have. I'm going to find photos of them and a video and send them to you. <laughs> Please do send them to me because I, I want, I want to, I'll Google it of course, but I want to see the real thing. Okay. So, done. Um, yeah. Um, I hope I don't see one anytime soon though. I know. So. I kind of don't want you to send them to me because I don't want you to see it either. Like I feel bad. Do they bite? Do they bite? No, they just spit. They spit? they spit. Yeah. They like, they have like oil. 
Oh, so they're disrespectful little shits. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather be bitten than spit on. That's just mean. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the ultimate disrespect. Mikey, some people pay extra money for that. Oh, that's fucking gross. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Speaking to, to comment on that. Um, Jason said that, you know, there was another addiction that he had when he was exposed to porn and all that. Apparently, we're both sex addicts, too, because we were interviewed by Brianna Davis, the wonderful Brianna Brianna Davis. And uh, she gave us a test. And Jason and I failed miserably. (laughs) Like if you miss 12 then or less then you're good and we missed what like 30 i got 34 out of 40 i got like 29 or 30 or something like that i was like fuck tack that on all right sex addict so the spitting thing okay i guess i walked right into that (laughs) but i already knew that i knew that i didn't that was the last thing i wanted to confront i thought i was just living my best life single but apparently it's an addiction so (laughs) i'm just like great awesome we we will cross addict and addict to anything anything and that's that's a decent addiction <laughs> what are you gonna do rock right? and roll <laughs> right? exactly i want to do sex drugs and rock and roll and i just like the sexual part of it not that i always acted so there was out with no someone drugs else. or rock and roll yeah <laughs> you know i mean me on the boat bobs <laughs> <laughs> uh oh i was asking like what's life you- like now for for tony the best so i only started going out like to bars and um you know places like that with my friends about three years into my recovery mm-hmm. um three and a half years in because i i wasn't ready then I, like i said i needed to keep things as simple as possible in the beginning also i was in like uh, treatment for so long and i started going out my friends own a, a bar in joburg it's in one of the coolest places ever and i phoned my friend and i was like i'm coming there so i went there for my for the for like an hour and i bounced and i started getting used to that kind of stuff and then i met the coolest group of friends not in recovery you know they're just normal homies living their best lives and i met them and we started going out and we started going out every week and we would go to places i felt comfortable like cool uh tattoo people bars and um you know like you find your peeps um alternative kind of places and then we would go to art galleries and go hang out in tattoo shops i've been hiking a few times thought i would die didn't die um i no, go I for coffee <laughs> i hate hiking i hate it, I hate oh, it. I so, it. yeah no I camping hiking no thank you i'm good I hate it. I hate it. And I try to act all chill doing it. I'm like, okay, guys, I can totally do this. And as everyone turns around, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> Can't drink water, like cry a little bit. Uh, yeah, so yeah, hate don't it. cry behind a tree. Everyone's <laughs> like, you don't like camping? I'm like, no, we've evolved as humans. We have hotels now. We have air conditioning and heating. Pussy. If you go to a nice Pussy. hotel, people will bring you food. Pussy. You know what? I'll Wait, still backhand you, pussy or not. <laughs> Wavelength. Stay wavelength. I need bring things to me. Bring things I don't to want me, to We've evolved as humans, bro. I don't need to go hunt my food anymore. I can just get it. I can just have it delivered to me or go buy it. Even better. Exactly. But I figured out in recovery, I don't like hiking. That was new. So yeah. I was like, I might like this. And you know, you like to figure out those kind of things. Sure. Um, I'll still do it once in a while, though, just to like appease my homies. <laughs> no, I'm not. Fuck my friends. I won't do that. <laughs> I, I hate it so much i hate it so much and you can see like i'm wearing these gloves 
So I have um, a disease called Raynaud's disease where my hands go like a completely different color. Can you see yeah. to the rest of my body? And when I go hiking, my hands swell. They swell so bad and it's so embarrassing. And I'm just like, everything's fine, guys. Meanwhile, I'm dying. <laughs> is it painful? It's so painful. Oh, shit. I'm, sorry. I'm actually taking my gloves off now because it's a little bit hot. Yeah, totally. Um, but it's it's like, it's it's very painful. It's just no blood circulation. It's like right. contact things. It, like, it feels like a million splinters in my hands. But yeah, I thought so you just had a Kat Von D vibe going on. That's what I thought. I don't know. Gloves. I'm trying to own it now. Like I'm going to, I swear I'm going to get the coolest gloves. I want like leather gloves. I want to put spikes on them. I want to get like some graffiti on them and just be like, this is who I am now. Yeah. I just have to own it. I've got like a collection of gloves going now. I only like got all the diagnoses like literally a month ago. Oh, wow. wow. But you have been <laughs> battling it for a while though, not knowing what it was, correct? Oh, since I was a kid. Like I knew it was Raynaud's um, since I was a kid, but I didn't know how severe it was. And what it actually was like an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. So I only found that out recent. And it's a lot of this has to do with addiction. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure we destroy our, our systems. I mean, I, I did a checkup and was amazed. My kidneys and liver, they're like, ah, oh, no, you're functioning great. But, but I fucked up my testosterone. It's like, you're way low for a guy your age. It's like, oh, you are freakishly close to sprouting a vagina. Uh, I think so. <laughs> Pretty much. I am a pretty sensitive. My friend sitting with me now and laughing. So what did you find career-wise that, that once you got out, that was your passion? Okay. So in active addiction, like I said, I was going, I was starting to be, um, I got my honors in dramatic art and screenwriting. That was always my passion. And I was doing really well as an actress. And I got, <laughs> I got cast in this really big series in South Africa. And I was, this was an active addiction. And I went there and I was on set and it was taking too long. And I was like, I hate this. I'm leaving. I'm going home. So I just left set. And the next day they were like, are you coming in? Because we really need to shoot your scene. So I made my mom like take the phone. I told her I was feeling sick. And she's like, no, Tony's in hospital, like whatever. So I literally ruined my acting career, ruined it. I, I stopped production on one of the biggest shows in the country. Um, and I played a drug dealer on that show. That was cool. Um, anyway, I never went to bed. But afterwards, I, I obviously had to get out of that industry and I didn't know where to go. So someone I met in Narcotics Anonymous said to me, I know you're good at writing. You studied screenwriting. Let's get you into digital marketing. You know, you can freelance for this company I work for. And now nine and a half years later, and I am a, I am a digital content creator, um, a content writer. So that's what I do. I blog and do social media stuff all day and day. That's awesome. Nice. It's the way of the world now. There's social media people making more money than neurosurgeons. <laughs> Crazy. I wish I was. I wish I was. Right. I'm not good looking enough. No. Well, okay. Yeah, I'm not good looking enough. You you fit the bill. You're the pretty one. I can't. Yeah. No, I can't do it. TikTok. You have to do TikTok. Uh, we're trying. Your advice has helped. So I did. Pu- I did put up a Sheen video on there, and that that thing has started to gain some traction. So you, you're it's right. <laughs> oh, I, I, you offered help. Don't don't think I'm not going to be like getting the advice because I'm I'm coming for it. So yeah, when you get DMs from that, it's him. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. 
let's talk uh let's talk tattoos you know we're all tatted up and i <laughs> you guys are the ones that don't remember some of them i remember all of mine uh, i never had that flexibility to just go out and get them i didn't realize i had the flexibility i was you know it was hollywood it was hollywood nights it's la babe and uh apparently i had tipped my guy in cigarettes and gave him the rest of whatever bottle i had i was with uh, a buddy of mine who he actually just moved back from LA. He's been there the entire time. It was two, and I got the area code of where I'm from while we were in LA. And I've grown to like it now. <laughs> but I woke up and I was like, ah, oh my, oh, what the fuck? Like, that's the first time that had ever happened. Fast forward a couple months, I get LAMF tattooed. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of Johnny Thunders, but I got LAMF tattooed on me, which was the name of his on his album and i'm just like okay i gotta stop getting blackout tattoos because this shit's getting old so those are my ones so let's hear yours so the first tattoo i got i actually remember it slightly i was uh 15 or 15 yeah we were on holiday uh with the family and our friends used to go to the beach in durban or whatever and we got super trashed and I was just walking along the promenade and we saw a tattoo shop and me and my friend Claudia were like, let's get a tattoo. This oak didn't ask us for ID. Didn't, we were too drunk like children walking in and he tattooed, it's like an unk on my hip bone, but it's not even on my hip bone because I know like in my head, I can see what I did. He was probably like pulling down, you know, like saying I need to like pull the pants down a little bit and I didn't want to. So it's like skew, <laughs> it's like the skewest tattoo. Um, so that was one where I was trapped. I was trashed. And then I had to tell my mom it was a nightmare. And then the ones on my feet. So I have breathing experience, breathe out poetry on my feet. Hmm. I was so <clears throat> trashed on meth. I don't know if anyone's been tattooed on meth and alcohol. It was the worst experience of my life. I don't, the guy who did it, I was supposed to go to someone else. I ended up at someone else. It's very blurry. Um, I was talking the whole time. I was crying. I don't remember how I took care of it. I don't remember who I was there with. All I know is I ended up with two tattoos on my feet. It's just like cocaine and alcohol, but not meth. And I can't. Yeah, no, I can't. And taking care of it too. Isn't that weird how that works? There are some people who get tattoos and they're just like, ah, whatever. And just leave it. And it looks amazing. And then you baby a new tattoo and it just looks like shit. (laughs) I guess it just reflects on your artist. (laughs) And how deep I, really much, eh? I just I just wrap them for the day and then take it off and put my cream on. Oh, yeah. I baby the hell out of it. Same. Yeah. I baby the hell out of it. Like if I get my hands when I got my hands tattooed, I kept my shit straight like this for like a week. And a, he pumped my gas one time. Remember that I had gotten my fingers touched up and I was like, I need you to pump the gas. And he's like, why? I'm like, because I can't. I don't want to bend it because your skin stretches and the ink gets pulled out. And, and he calls me a pussy, Tony. No, I said, you're growing a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm like this and I didn't want to stretch my fingers. I'm like, you got to put gas in. He's like, all right. So I baby the shit out of him. But you got some amazing portraiture. Uh, what do you got on you and uh, what inspired you to get those? So I got Wednesday Adams. Um, when my dad, this was actually, so this was the sleeve I got after my, well, most of the sleeve after my dad died. So I wanted to get Wednesday Adams and this, I saw some, do you want to hear my tattoo story? Because it's yes. Funny. Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. So my ex-boyfriend did this sleeve. <laughs> I was sober when he did it. Um, he did the sleeve. Then this, this guy goes to Los Angeles 
to tattoo in Los Angeles and goes <laughs> to see one of our favorite bands. And I am just scrolling on Instagram one day and I'm following a hashtag that's psychobilly. That's it's like a really small genre of music. And I see oh, my yeah. band is band playing and I click play. Some random dude on the internet was filming the band, <laughs> was filming the band, and my boyfriend at the time was literally in shot with another chick. Like oh, I caught him cheating on me. Damn, what are the random account? And I was like, okay, um, I need a new fucking tattoo artist now. And I'm <laughs> going to like go, like I'm done with like, you know, dating tattoo artists. Like, no, no, no. So I saw someone that I didn't, um, I, I didn't know what he looked like because he was a graffiti artist as well. So, you know, never show the face. And he had done a, a portrait of Wednesday Adams and Gomez Adams, which is what I wanted for my dad. And I rocked up there and ended up with Wednesday and now he's my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome the work is amazing i have a question real quick on that so does that sleeve constantly remind you of your egg oh well then good good nah. it's actually really good sleeve he doesn't it, really no it's fantastic <laughs> it looks it looks great i, I was, was just curious what him. Your I was gonna shade him, but i'm not gonna shade him yeah, no, I don't think that's, it's, uh, look, I love the sleeve. It's got, it's got a lot of meaning to me. It doesn't, doesn't, I, I, I feel like I don't have that connection with him on here. Sure. Yeah, that's good. What, yeah. What's the significance I got to ask of uh, Wednesday or the Adams family in general? Cause you mentioned your dad. So I was a little goth um, child, always into Halloween horror, you know, the usual kind of stuff. And my dad, like, I just saw us as Wednesday and Gomez. Like I was his little girl, you know, he was my cool, weird dad. And yeah, that's that I've always just had an affinity to the Adams family. And this whole sleeve is actually like kind of horror fantasy woman. Um, I've got Maleficent. I've got Bride of Frankenstein and I've got Vampira. Oh, and yeah, these are my, and then I've even got like this leg is just a bunch of women. It's just woman. Do you have Medusa leg. on you? No, I haven't got the Medusa tattoo yet. I'm doing it on my back. I have a Medusa tattoo and I had no idea how common it was. <laughs> like I, uh, my dad was, is obsessed with clash of the Titans. He loves yeah. clash of the Titans. So I got Medusa right above where I got mom with some flowers and I got Julie, which is my mom's name and her birthday on Roman numerals across my throat. So I've gotten a few tattoos from my mom. So I had to ask on the Medusa one because uh, no, no Medusa yet. I really do want Medusa though. Yeah, that'll look. It's dope. It's dope. She's got snakes in her hair. It's fucking yeah, sick. right. She's yeah. badass. I love it. And the story is Hey, Tony. Uh, we always ask to have the guests leave us with the final thoughts, but uh, before we get there, are you down for some fun random questions? Go for it. If they were to make a movie about you, who would you cast to play yourself? Angelina Jolie. <laughs> I could see that. Uh, I could see that. But you know who I was going to say? I know I asked you this, but I'll answer it. Emily Blunt. Oh, yeah. Give her dark hair. Put some dark hair on her. Throw some fake sleeves on her. I love that. I'm down. I'm down. You just made my day. (laughs) (laughs) If by some chance uh, an acting opportunity was offered to you and it was you could play any one character, what would that character be? That's such a hard question. I'm trying to answer this quickly. It would be it would be Morticia Adams. Hell yeah. I love it. Yeah. Top three favorite movies of all time. Oh, Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. Um, 
wait, clockwork. I, I studied film, so now I'm going to get. I'm going to overthink. Clockwork Orange, uh, Train Spotting. Oh wow! And um, um, Citizen Kane. Mm. You like some shit that can go because I too I have a degree in film directing for the camera minor acting for it. You you went to some dark shit with two of them. That's a good reminder of why why to stay sober. And then one of the most brilliant films of all time. You have to throw in like Citizen Kane and then just like dash like uh, band movies. So like Clockwork Orange, get all those that that darkness in. You know, balance yeah. it out. Uh, all right, Miss Tony. Well, uh, man. Well, we could probably talk to you forever and hopefully we do talk again. But um, if there's anything that you can leave from your experience in life for those listening, be it they're struggling with mental health, addiction, or they know a loved one that is that that you could share. I would say to anyone struggling with addiction that reach out, just reach out and ask for help. There are resources around you and you might as well give it a shot. What else do you have to lose? You know? Just go for it. When you are ready and when you are willing, that's when things change. And it's up to you to make that change. Um, to family members of addicts, I would say put down your boundaries, put yourself first, protect yourself first, and get help for you. If they don't want your help, there's nothing else you can do. You know, you have to get the help for yourself and work on your own soul and fixing your own soul. Um, and then for people who struggle with mental illness, it's just important to know you're not alone. You're not alone and there are places you can go and people you can speak to who will just listen. Sometimes we don't need someone to give us advice. Sometimes we don't need that. We just need to know that there's places we go where we can feel safe and speak. There is a way out. There is a way to work through it. It's about finding what works for you and exploring that and remembering that recovery is possible. We just have to work on it every single day and things get easier and things get more beautiful. Hey, thank you. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, guys. For real, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Really appreciate it. I'm coming to LA, so you're going to have to like just see me at some point. DM us. We'll be there. We're always Deal. there. <laughs> hey. Tony Becker, thank you. You are cool, homie, and uh, we appreciate you coming on Knocking Doors Down and talking with us. I don't know how they do it, man. I don't know how they do. I know that there was a lot of inspirational stuff here, but I can only focus on that beetle. And she sent me a picture of it. <laughs> Heck. It's it, it's got like horns and it spits. And once a month they come out, or I'm sorry, once a year for a month they come out. Yeah. So what do they do? Do they just hibernate? Do they all die off and then just are reborn this month? Well, look at it with like uh, so many questions. Like where we live, there's a lot of yellow jackets, wasps, and all those things, and they yeah, just but winter go away. And then it's out. a bee. You you avoid it. This is like a fucking beetle that spits at you. <laughs> it's the most disrespectful little asshole ever. It spits at you. <laughs> a disrespectful Gosh. little asshole. You mean it's not one of your nephews? No, <laughs> it's just a disrespectful fucking insect that spits at you. <laughs> Uh, hey we hope you got a lot out of uh, Tony's uh, share here on the Knocking Doors Down podcast Uh, more on her go to the link in the podcast description and check her out Uncle Mike you got anything else no I'm going home on that note keep knocking doors down people 
This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.